Are you aware that cancer is the leading cause of burden of disease for Australians compared to all other health conditions? And physical activity and exercise play a leading role in reducing a number of symptoms cancer patients experience. Symptoms, however, vary based on different treatments as well as cancer. Welcome to Talking Physio, an initiative of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. The foundation supports the profession in a number of ways, including the promotion and translation of research. This episode is proudly sponsored by Flexies, Australia's number one heat wrap. It's been clinically proven to be effective for back pain relief, lasting up to 15 hours. Flexies is the exclusive partner of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. In this episode is Dr Elise Gain, Conjoint Research Fellow at the University of Queensland and Princess Alexandra Hospital, and National Chair of the Cancer, Palliative Care and Lymphedema Group. With her is Catherine Granger, Associate Professor of Physiotherapy at the University of Melbourne and Physiotherapy Research Lead at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. They take to the mic for an open discussion on some of the challenges physiotherapists face when supporting people along the cancer journey, specifically lung cancer. The duo dive into the types of medical treatments available during the different stages of lung cancer, the importance of including exercise program outcomes in lung cancer research trials, and the recent updates on the exercise guideline for people with cancer. They also discuss the magic dose of exercise prescription to this group. So let's get started and find out. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Elise. Thanks for chatting this morning. Oh, that's great. I always enjoy the opportunity to speak about cancer and exercise and to get that uh, message out through the physiotherapy profession. That's something that I've been really working on as national chair. And your work, Catherine, has been really interesting over the last few years. So you work with patients who have lung cancer, is that right? Yes, Elise, that's correct. Um, Our research is predominantly focused on looking at the role of physical activity or exercise training for people diagnosed with lung cancer. We are doing work in other cancer groups as well, but um, many of our large trials are really focused on people with lung cancer. And Catherine, what does a person with lung cancer look like? Do we see more men than women have this disease? Do they often come with a set of comorbidities? What sort of patient might we be looking at? So lung cancer is very common and very common in Australia. It generally affects males and females, slightly more males and females, but it does affect both groups of people. Lung cancer is really common in Australia. It generally affects the elderly population, so most people we see with lung cancer are over the age of 65 years, and many people with lung cancer have been smokers in the past. There's certainly a proportion of people with lung cancer who are never smokers, and we use that term to describe someone who's never smoked in their life. We know that lung cancer cancer can be caused by other things other than smoking but most people that we see have been smokers so because of that they have other conditions such as cardiopulmonary obstructive disease cardiovascular disease other comorbidities that may be coming alongside the lung cancer so in some ways it's a little bit of a complex group to work with because people might have the lung cancer as well as many other conditions and what do you find is commonly used to medically treat lung cancer. What sort of medical treatments are these patients involved in? 
The type of treatment for people with lung cancer depends on when it's picked up and diagnosed. For people who have early stage lung cancer, when it hasn't spread widely throughout the body, the best treatment possible is surgery. So surgery to remove the section of the lung where the cancer is. And depending on the stage, they may also have a regime of chemotherapy and radiation therapy after surgery. For people who are diagnosed with later stage disease, when it might have spread elsewhere, uh, surgery is much less common and then we might be looking at treatments such as chemotherapy or radiation therapy or some newer treatments like immunotherapy. But these treatments, whilst they're designed to to treat the cancer, are associated with significant side effects for the person. So often as a physiotherapist, people are coming to us with lung cancer, they might have been through their treatment, but actually they're experiencing a range of other symptoms that have really been caused by that treatment as well as the cancer. And I imagine a lot of those symptoms and side effects are around their cardiopulmonary health you know they're um, maybe they're short of breath maybe they have a significant cough you know their functions being impaired what sort of go-to treatments are there for addressing some of those side effects in this population well the one I'm the most interested in is exercise and as a physio that's our really our core business and we, we now know that exercise is beneficial in reducing a number of those symptoms that you describe Elise. Um, we know in lung cancer that exercise reduces shortness of breath, it improves fitness levels, it reduces fatigue, uh, it improves muscle strength and, and that's one of the, the issues in lung cancer is people become very weak. So I'm particularly interested in the role of exercise and it's something that all physiotherapists know how to do as we're very good at exercise prescription so it's something that we should be thinking about for anyone diagnosed with cancer at any point along their cancer journey can we help this person start exercising and can we prescribe a program to help address some of those symptoms but also improve many other outcomes for them and exercise is something that I know has recently in some trials been shown uh, or been trialled in people between the time of diagnosis and when they might have surgery or start some radiation therapy and we call that prehabilitation. What can you tell us about the way that prehab is used for patients with lung cancer? Elise, there's lots of interest in prehab, particularly in lung cancer, but in in many types of cancers. Um, To begin with talking about lung cancer, the role of prehab is to help that person become as fit as possible before going through surgery, and the surgery itself is a huge stress on the body. One of the issues we have in lung cancer is that the time between diagnosis and surgery is very short, which is which is fantastic for the patient, and we want to rush them through to surgery as quickly as possible. But for physiotherapists trying to prescribe an exercise program, we may only have days to weeks to work with that person, and it becomes quite challenging. We don't have the luxury of time that we might have for other programs such as pulmonary rehabilitation or cardiac rehab. So there's lots of interest in prehab in, in the context of lung cancer. There's growing evidence to show that it is beneficial if we can help people access a program. The types of outcomes that we're we're seeing at the moment in some of the trials that are being completed are things such as reducing post-operative pulmonary complications after surgery, improving fitness levels after the exercise program, potentially helping people get out of hospital quicker and also reducing readmissions back to hospital. But at the moment, that state of evidence is still questionable. There's only a, you know, a few trials. Some of the trials are of poorer quality. So we can't say definitively they're the outcomes we expect, but there's very promising signals. Yeah, I'm really interested in those outcomes like post-operative pulmonary complications, length of stay, because they can demonstrate 
to policymakers, to, to health policy leaders in, in government, and you know that physio could have a cost benefit. You know, if we can reduce the number of complications someone has after surgery, if we can get them home quicker, get them out of hospital, that's you know not only are we improving patient outcomes, but we're saving some health dollars. What do you think about physio and, and physio research? moving to include some of those outcomes in the trials that we do. Is that important? Alicia, it's essential. Um, Most of the trials that have been done so far in lung cancer haven't included those types of endpoints, looking at cost effectiveness, but it's really vital. We're at a a state now uh, where we need to look at implementing exercise programs, and as physios, we care a lot about Obviously, we care about the person and we're really interested in their symptoms and their fitness and their quality of life. But to actually implement these programs into practice, we need to show whether it's cost effective, exactly as you've described. And that's been some of the the limitations in the studies that have been done so far as they haven't looked at those outcomes. We suspect some of these programs will be cost effective. If we're showing people get out of hospital quicker, you know, we're saving a lot of dollars that that it costs the hospital. um, But we need to look at that in future research now. And implementation is really interesting too because I see a couple of challenges there. So there's an implementation challenge of, you know, getting a physio service into a clinic that perhaps may not have had physios around before. That's something that I experienced with my PhD research in head and neck cancer. I was trying to get to patients prior to their surgery and, you know, I was the first physio that had been around that clinic. But the other thing is with patients specifically when they're undergoing treatment, radiation, for example, chemotherapy, those treatments have side effects. They get fatigued. They might get skin changes. You know, their nutrition might be affected. What would you advise for physios about how they can approach patients or encourage patients to engage in a bit of exercise or physical activity during that time that they're undergoing that treatment? There's really not one answer. It's a very uh, tough area and it's very tough for that person who's living with cancer going through that treatment as exactly as you've described. Symptoms can be terrible and to see a, you know, a bright and bubbly physiotherapist saying, we want you to exercise now, it's probably the last thing they want. Um, but the, I really believe the key is individualisation and working with that individual person, working with them to see what their goals are, what they want to be doing, what type of exercise they may enjoy. If they don't like exercise at all, what their least hated part of exercise is, to tailor it exactly to that person. And the other thing is to ensure that 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 person is well informed because many people in the public are not aware of the benefits of exercising if you have cancer. So ensuring that the person that you're working with is well informed that these are the benefits we generally expect. We have high quality evidence across many cancer groups that exercise is beneficial. So we really strongly believe it would be worthwhile you exercising. And then also to understand the final thing is that exercise in the short term might make that person feel short of breath while they're exercising, but in the long term we're expecting it to reduce over time. So it's okay in the exercise session to feel a bit puffed and to feel tired, but with time that's going to certainly improve. Elise, can you tell us a little bit about your research in surgery and head and neck surgery in particular and what some of the barriers were that you were talking about before? Yeah, sure. So um, my PhD was focused on patients who had head and neck cancer. So that's cancer that it might occur in the nose, the mouth, the throat, uh, larynx, pharynx. And that patient cohort is a really interesting one. It's sort of split off into two different groups. There's the older 
predominantly male group who are smokers and drinkers and I guess that goes to you know those lifestyle factors being risk factors for for cancer alcohol consumption tobacco so they're getting head and neck cancer and they have a um, particular set of needs and side effects and treatments that they might undergo but then there's this other really interesting group of patients who are younger they're in their 30s and 40s and 50s again they're predominantly male but they're getting hpv associated oropharyngeal cancer so cancer in the the tonsils in the back of the tongue and that cancer actually comes with a a good prognosis it responds really really well to radiation therapy it's not associated with smoking or drinking so these patients are otherwise relatively healthy you can say that about a patient with cancer Uh, and they can have some side effects that will stay with them as well for for a long time through their survivorship um, mainly around speech and swallow but the focus of my PhD was that sort of slightly older group who are having surgery So I looked at patients who had neck dissection surgery where surgeons are taking lymph nodes out of the neck and we know that that operation can involve the accessory nerve, powers your trapezius muscle, allows your shoulder to function normally. What I was able to demonstrate was that having the the accessory nerve involved in the surgery or not wasn't the only predictor of whether someone would have shoulder or neck problems afterwards. So one of my key findings was that when you put radiation therapy on top of surgery and then you put chemotherapy on top of radiation and surgery, people have worse musculoskeletal outcomes. So we call that multimodality therapy and that's becoming more the norm for treatment of cancer. There are some trials that are trying to pick the right patient for the right therapy and you know, can you get away with less treatment to avoid some side effects. But yeah, in this population, I was really able to highlight that they are having shoulder problems, there's a loss of range, loss of strength, Uh, it's interfering with daily life, and then at the neck as well, they're losing muscle strength, Uh, they're having issues with driving and sleeping because of their neck-related disability. And physiotherapy is not really common in this space. We're not in the multidisciplinary clinics. We don't traditionally see them before surgery. There is some information provided by nursing about what might happen to their shoulder after this operation. But otherwise, the first time they'll see a physio is on the ward after surgery when they have a couple of drains in. We're asking them not to move their shoulder above 90 degrees because they have a drain in their neck. So I was fortunate in establishing some really good relationships with some of the ENT surgeons that I was working with at the hospitals where I was in Brisbane and I have a number of really supportive speech therapy colleagues so (laughs) I would suggest if you are a physio in a new space where there aren't a lot of physios make some friends (laughs) other allied health professionals are useful and you can sort of yeah band together and and be an advocate both for your profession and for your patients. So Elise I'm just imagining from what you've described in the head and neck cancer population that Uh, musculoskeletal injuries are common so quite possibly physios working in private practice might see a patient walk in the door who's had that type of cancer in the past that treatment and now complaining of of shoulder problems or pain is there anything you could recommend for people working in that setting yeah I would recommend that you go back to basics and think about biomechanics so Where is the scapula? Is it positioned forwards? Is that affecting movement of the shoulder? 
Are they in forward head posture? What's the scarring and the tissue tightness like across their neck? Because not only might they have a scar, but with radiation, you also get tissue fibrosis, which is going to restrict range of motion. So yeah, I would just encourage people, don't get scared off by the, the cancer history and especially head and neck cancer. It's not as common as breast and prostate and colorectal and lung cancer in Australia. So they are sort of fewer patients that you might come across. But these patients can have neck pain and uh, they can have shoulder pain. Uh, They can have TMJ problems, uh, especially if they've had surgery around their jaw. So yeah, I would just encourage everyone just to, to go back to your biomechanics, think it through, think about what muscles need to do what Um, and if their accessory nerve has been affected maybe looking to use some compensatory strategies and focusing on just promoting their function maximizing what they can do with what they've got and it brings us to a broader issue that we know cancer is the leading cause of burden of disease for Australians compared to all health conditions. And it's so common now that someone's had cancer as a past medical history because cures are much better for general cancers when, when you step outside the, the specialty areas that we're, we've been talking about so far, lung and head and neck cancer. So it's so common for a physiotherapist, regardless of the setting they're working in, whether it's a hospital setting or a private practice or a community setting, to be seeing someone who either has cancer now or who has cancer in the past. So with that in mind, there's been some uh, very exciting news recently that we have finally had an update of the exercise guidelines for people with cancer. The background to this is the first iteration of the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines came out in 2010. And there have been a number of iterations since that time, but a very big release this week, releasing the new guidelines. And Elise, could you tell us a little bit about this release and the guidelines? Yeah, sure. So it was really, really exciting. It was sort of all over Twitter over the last few days. And just a plug for Twitter, there is a big exercise oncology community on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, please look it up. So there were three papers released recently. Two of them are in the journal Medicine and Science in Sport and Exercise. And then there's a third paper in the CA, a Cancer Journal for Clinicians publication. So the two that are in Medicine and Science are focused around physical activity, sedentary behaviour, and then the actual exercise guidelines themselves. So the first paper talks about how physical activity is known to be beneficial for actually the prevention of several types of cancer. So there's evidence now that having increased levels of physical activity can prevent breast cancer, colon cancer, endometrial cancer, kidney cancer, a few others. So that's really, really exciting news. And that's something that we as physiotherapists can sell as a prevention message. So I see physiotherapists as having more like a growing important role in the preventative health space. And so having this evidence to suggest that being physically active can prevent you from getting cancer. I mean, that's amazing. That's a message that we should be selling and, and, and selling that physiotherapy can help people maybe with other musculoskeletal conditions be as physically active as possible to promote general overall health. The other thing that, that this paper suggested that reducing sedentary behaviour may reduce the risk of some cancers like endometrial, colon and lung cancer. And I just want to pause there and sort of reflect on physical activity and sedentary behaviour. I would also refer listeners to an excellent paper in The Lancet, which looked at the relationship between physical activity and sedentary behaviour, so, and the effect that those two things have on mortality. So if you are very inactive and very sedentary, your risk of mortality is 
quite high and much higher than someone who does a lot of physical activity but also has a lot of sedentary behaviour. So those are two really key concepts for physios to understand. We want to promote physical activity, but we also want to promote avoidance of long bouts of sedentary behaviour. And just on that note, Elise, do you have any top tips of how to talk to patients about reducing sedentary behaviour before I ask you about the other papers? Um, I think using cues is really helpful. So associating standing up or doing other forms of physical activity with tasks. So if you're at the photocopier at work, can you stand? Can you do some movement with your body while you're there? Every time you... You know, you're making a cup of tea in the kitchen, stay in the kitchen and stand (laughs) instead of being at the table waiting for the kettle to boil. I think those, like you were saying before about individualisation, it's important to get a sense from your patients about what their day looks like. And that is also useful in terms of helping your patients prioritise where they might squeeze into their busy schedule, the physical activity that you're asking them to do. So sometimes setting timers uh, can help as well. There are apps, there are computer programs that can tell you to stand up every 20 minutes. Uh, They might be useful as well. Wonderful. And then what are the new guidelines telling us for people that do have cancer in terms of exercise? Yeah, so there are some really key messages in this new set of guidelines. So the first one is that both exercise testing and training is safe for people with cancer. So I think... Physios sometimes run up against barriers from the medical profession to say that, oh, you know, this patient's too sick, you know, they need to rest. Well, actually, no, we need to get them moving. And when we get them moving and we do our assessments, the patients are safe. I think, did you mention recently that the number of adverse events from some of the exercise trials are actually really, really small? Yes, that's correct. They're really low. We we certainly know, for example, if I draw lung cancer, which is one of our sickest populations of people with cancer, and certainly the the leading cause of cancer burden across all the groups, that the adverse event rate is extremely low. We're we're talking about across big meta-analyses, sort of one or two serious adverse events. So it's um, the conclusion certainly is exercise is safe when done in an appropriate manner, and physios are perfect professionals to be prescribing exercise for this group absolutely we are definitely another thing that the guidelines highlighted for us that we now have good quality evidence to support using specific doses of exercise that might be aerobic exercise that might be resistance training or a combination of both we have evidence for specific doses of those exercises that we know can improve anxiety and depression in people with cancer can improve cancer-related fatigue, which is the number one common side effect for across all cancer populations. It can also improve physical functioning and improve quality of life. So, so what is that magic dose? So they are suggesting three sessions a week of 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise and then two to three sessions of resistance training. And then also the avoidance of inactivity. So having those set periods of time where you're engaging in moderate aerobic intensity exercise or resistance training, and then for the other times, the other parts of your day, avoiding 
long periods of sedentary behaviour and being generally inactive. So they're recommending now the new guidelines three, lots of 30 minutes of moderate intensity. And previously, we've talked a lot about five times 30 minutes over a week. So it's a little bit of a scale back from some of the earlier messages. Yeah, I guess it's easier to convince someone. Much to easier. Three <laughs> much easier, 30 yeah. minutes of exercise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. definitely. When, when you're also adding in the resistance training as well, it's very hard to be doing theoretically eight sessions across a week of five sessions of moderate you know, intensity aerobic exercise and two to three sessions of resistance. It's much easier to be doing doing a little bit less that's yeah. a good a good message yeah but um yeah i would encourage everyone to look up those articles and and read through the detail because they did touch on some other issues uh you might be interested in like lymphedema for example so we we definitely have strong evidence that resistance training in women with breast cancer doesn't exacerbate their lymphedema and that's a really powerful message to sell to both patients who might be worried about you know my arm is swollen, it's quite heavy, can I use it? Can I go to the gym with my arm like this? Uh, yes, you can. And selling that message to their doctors and medical oncologists as well that it is safe. The third paper in this series published in the CA Journal was uh, more of a sort of reflective piece on exercises medicine in oncology. And that was really a call to action for key stakeholders, which definitely include physiotherapists, to be creating the infrastructure and the cultural adaptations around them that we need in order to get exercise into standard clinical care for patients who um, might be at the time of their diagnosis, undergoing treatment, or in the the period of their lives after that, and at the end of life as well. So Elise, if you were implementing an exercise program to start with in your, your setting, when would you choose the timing to be? Would you, you just described a few options there, before treatment, during treatment, after treatment, or in the survivorship time. Is there one particular time that you would run your program for people with cancer? From what I've seen of some of the trials that have looked at timing, you know, do you start exercise during treatment or after treatment? I think it's suitable to start it during treatment if you've got the right person, if they're willing to exercise with some of their side effects, if they, or if you can exercise around their side effects, you know, shorter bouts of exercise a couple of times a day rather than a big block of exercise that might exacerbate their fatigue, for example. So you do need to individualise it on that level. But the evidence also strongly tells us that exercise for someone who's had a cancer diagnosis can prevent the occurrence of a secondary cancer. So exercising in that post-treatment phase is also really, really important. So maybe you start there with your clinic. It's such a hard question. I think we don't really have clear evidence yet. And it's it's probably one of my big research questions that I'm interested in at the moment is, is when is the best time to intervene? I mean, we, we really understand that people with cancer experience significant decline in function in general. Some people don't. Some people recover very quickly back to work, back to their lives. But, but generally, people continue to experience this functional decline. So one school of thought is to start as early as possible and prevent that decline. Uh, the other school of thought is that people are really sick during treatment and, and let's wait and start afterwards. And I don't, I don't think we have the evidence yet to exactly answer that question. We really need to research that. But I really encourage for physiotherapists working with people with cancer to enrol people in an exercise program or give them access to an exercise program as soon as possible, whenever possible really, because access is a big issue at the moment for the physio profession and for people with cancer 
cancer in general to be able to access a program. We don't have enough programs. Uh, they're fairly rare at this stage. So until we have stronger data, I would say exercising whenever uh, there is a program available. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and also reminding and reinforcing to your patients that that sort of that structured exercise, the aerobic, the resistance training is important, but also being generally physically active is important. So that might be as simple as, you know, walking around the block. Let's do that 10 minute block of exercise. Can we do it in the morning? Can we do it in the afternoon? So encouraging that physical activity outside of the clinic setting, facilitating it through what you're doing in the clinic, but yeah, encouraging people to be as generally physically active as they can. Do you have any tips for good resources for physios working in this area or for physios not working in the area who might have uh, working with a client who has cancer? So the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines here are a great place to start. I'd also encourage you to have a look at some of the resources on reputable websites for organisations like the Cancer Council and Cancer Australia. If you'd like to get a bit more background information about you know who it is in Australia who's getting cancer and surviving cancer the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare publishes that sort of data there are some key groups overseas that have some really good websites and resources so the Macmillan Cancer Centre from the UK and the other thing to remember is that the Journal of Physiotherapy have actually published a number of papers on this topic. So there's work by many groups, including you know, a couple of years ago I wrote an invited editorial on generally the physiotherapy management of people with lung cancer, which summarises for lung cancer. But there's Amy Dennett's work looking at different intensities of exercise training. There's been a number of articles in, in our Journal of Physio that listeners, I'm sure, would be interested to read. And then we also should plug the... COSA position statement for exercise in cancer care that was released last year. You can find the position statement on their website, COSA.org.au, and that is also quite a useful resource for physios to use when approaching our medical colleagues to say, look, we have evidence to support patients with cancer diagnosis undertaking exercise. It should be part of standard care there's all these benefits to it that we know so that can be a really powerful communication tool as well for us as physios and whilst that statement I I think is very brief um, it is helpful as you describe in selling this to our medical colleagues because it has been endorsed and brought out by COSA as you described the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia which is a you know a big medical body predominantly there's nursing and allied health involved as well but it's a, a really good selling point if you're advocating for exercise yeah great idea Elise, when you're working with someone with cancer and trying to inform them around exercise or sell that exercise is is going to be beneficial, do you have any advice or tips for physios about how you would go about doing that? I would usually start with a, a message like, something is better than nothing and a little bit more is better than a little bit less. So trying to also link what you're doing to what the person enjoys So getting a sense of what the person's previous experience with exercise might be. We often come across a lot of uh, women with a breast cancer diagnosis who were previously very, very active. So, you know, there's a hook in there already if they're familiar with exercise. Often they just need reassurance and some guidance as to how they might return to some of the activities and exercise that they previously really enjoyed. But for people that aren't all that familiar with exercise. The evidence suggests that 
supervised exercise could be better than unsupervised exercise. Providing that extra support while they are trying this new thing called exercise. Uh, So I think we need to keep that in mind, the level of support and encouragement we give patients. Maybe selling some of these messages around you know, being physically active, doing this exercise is going to help with these symptoms that you're currently experiencing. I also find there's a fear factor that many people, and it might be the person themselves who has cancer, or more commonly, it's actually their, their family, are really worried that exercise is going to make their symptoms worse or harm their response to the treatment or make the cancer worse. How do you deal with that? I think it comes back a little bit to the message of the benefits of exercise and that we do have now high quality evidence that exercise is safe and we know that we all expect that exercise will improve many of those outcomes and those symptoms. So, you know, 50 years ago we might have said to people to rest and to, to sit down and, and not do things, but now we actually know resting is not a good idea for most people. Sometimes certainly rest is, is correct and there's many times, for example, if someone has a temperature, well, we don't recommend exercising. So there are specific examples when rest is correct, but for the individual patient for that, that message we would recommend or we would say that rest is associated with declining in muscle strength, becoming weaker, losing your fitness, symptoms potentially coming worse. So we just need to start that that activity cycle a little bit. As you describe, a little bit is more than, than nothing and just doing a little bit extra each day is really beneficial. And I think that goes towards normalising exercise as a treatment. You know, in this space, everyone's doing it. So come and join us. Uh, Well, that's all the time that we have for our chat about exercise and cancer and physiotherapy in that space. Thank you, Catherine, for joining me this morning for the chat. Thank you, Elise, very much. Great discussion and looking forward to watching how the physio profession improves in this area over the next few years. Absolutely. That was Elise Gain and Catherine Granger. And you've been listening to another episode of Talking Physio. Brought to you by Flexies and the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. I hope it's been both informative and interesting. And I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Thanks for listening.